Pastor Eric, the lead pastor at the Brook. If you don't know me, and if you do, it's good to see you, fam. Yeah. I'm excited to open up God's word and be able to preach and teach today. I was thinking about this as Carrie was talking and, and as our worship team was leading. Like, every part of our gathering is so important. Like, like you know, the, the, the worship isn't prelude for the sermon. You know, the sermon is not the afterthought after the singing. The giving is, is not just something in the middle, but it's not that important. Like, it's all part of our worship. And I love how God uses every aspect of it on a given Sunday to move in our hearts. And I'm really glad for that. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to turn to, uh, to meet me in the book of Haggai. Uh, there is a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one, uh, there's a blue one there. And we do want to invite you to take that home if you don't own a printed copy of the Bible. If all you've got is a digital one, we'd love to have you have, you have that printed one. In a moment, I'll have you join me in page 791, which is the book of Haggai. We'll be in chapter 2. Well, this past week, fam, we had a wicked snowstorm, not nearly the snowpocalypse they were predicting. I don't know about you, but my kids were looking at their email, hoping the schools would get canceled. And we were thinking, like, you know, when we were your age, it would snow like this, and we'd go there barefoot. So this, go somewhere with your five inches of snow, right? Like, and we, you know, we start looking at the channel because we, we want, the truth is, I was hoping for a snow day too, man. I was like, I don't want to drive into school, right? We were hoping for it because we know that when you're driving out in the snow, it gets tough to get around, especially when the storm hits during rush hour. Like, that's the biggest nuisance. And for us, the biggest challenge we've got in the middle of a snowstorm is from getting out of our garage down the alley to the street. If you can make it to the street, you're home. Like, you're good. Like, but man, those, for us, it's like 40 feet. If I can make it 40 feet. And I don't know how many times we've pulled out of our alley and, like, we get eight feet and it's like, it's like sudden stop. And that's when you're like, oh, man, so frustrating. And if you've driven in the snow long enough, you know that there's kind of a trick to getting out of it. Before you have to get to that last resort of pulling out a shovel or getting a board under your tires or whatever it might be. What you got to do is step on the gas as hard as you can, right? No, that's not how it works. You got to rock the car. Just go forward and go reverse. Go forward and go reverse. You got you to rock it because by doing so, what's going on? Your tires are getting traction. Because your tires are searching for a foundation for them to touch down on to give them the momentum they need to get out of the stuck snow you're in. And we know what it's like to spin the tires round and round because you're pushing harder, but you ain't going nowhere. You see, we're like three minutes into this thing already, fam. I'm not even into the Bible yet, but we're getting there. But listen here. This is so true of our lives. Our lives often feel much like a snowstorm. And sometimes we get this idea that we just got to work harder at life in order for it to work out. But you find yourself just slamming on the gas pedal. You're spinning around and you're making no progress. Why? Because you're trying to proceed without the foundation beneath you. You see, fam, 
Today we're going to talk about what it means to get traction in our lives so that we can move forward with the life that God has planned for us and not with the strategy we think is going to work out. Today we're going to see how to really get some momentum in life. And there's a lot of things in life that cause us to feel stuck. Sometimes it could be when the bills are mounting up or like, yo, I'm stuck right now. Sometimes like, man, I've reached the ceiling at my workplace, but maybe I don't feel like I've got the skill set to go somewhere else. I feel stuck. Maybe it has to do with your education. Maybe it has to do with your relationships. Maybe it has to do with the romance. And you're like, I feel stuck. There's a lot of things that make us feel stuck. But there's one thing in particular we're going to look at today that I find all of us fall into the trap of doing that make us feel stuck often. And it's this thing called looking in the past. It's this thing called comparing yourself with others. It's this thing called living life with regret. And these things work in and against us. They work with each other, though. We can look to our past and be filled with so much regret because we're now starting to compare ourselves with others who appear to get it all together, and you're frustrated. Today, we're going to see what it's like to move past your past, how to gain some traction when you're stuck in comparison, when it appears that everyone else around you is happy and you're starting to become embittered toward people, bitter toward God, and disappointed with yourself. How do we proceed? Like real talk, like how do we proceed when we feel stuck? Because none of us wants to be stuck in the alley of life. None of us wants to feel like we're putting in a lot of work and making no progress. What we need in these moments is a word from God. We need to hear God's solution for gaining traction in life. How to move past your past. How to move past regrets. How to move past comparison and to find joy and satisfaction in what God can do. Y'all want to know the answer of how to move past your past? Well, to get that answer for the three of you who said yes, you can join me in Haggai chapter 2. The other of you who didn't say yes, if you're feeling yes, join me in Haggai chapter 2. And would you stand to your feet as I get ready to read from God's word. Again, we're on page 791 in the blue Bible in a chair in front of you, which is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. And like we mean that for real. Don't even feel bad. Put your name in it right now and take it home. We want you to have God's word because in here God talks, shares with us all kinds of things like the word we're about to hear today. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is what I'm going to read for you all. Here we are in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Some of you guys are like, this is why I don't read my Bible out loud. How do you say those names, right? And speak to all the remnant of the people and say in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong. Can you say be strong? 
Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong. Can you say it? Be strong, strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And again, say it. Be Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, we are coming to you this morning. And Lord, we want to hear a word from our God. God, I thank you that you are not a God who is silent. Our prayers don't fall on deaf ears. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that you would meet us here today. Meet us in that stream online. Meet us, God, in a way that is so tangible, Lord. Because as we were praying earlier with our team, we know that some are here today, some are watching today, who are asking the so what question of life. The so what question of you, Lord. And God, I pray that you would give them a compelling vision of how great you are. Lord, for my brother and my sister, for the youth here, the young person who's here, Lord, looking back in life and regretting choices they've made, regretting how things have panned out, for that one who is looking at others and wishing they had their life, I pray, Lord, you would break them from the chains of comparison and regret and that they would see you and your work in them in such a way that is so compelling that they are moved to praise of you, God. But for this, Lord, we need your spirit to meet us here. God, may our ears be attuned to your voice. Give us 2020 vision of your message. And may the words in my mouth And the meditation of my heart be ever pleasing to you, O God, my Savior, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take a seat, family. I love how relevant God's word is. And what at first glance feels so far removed from our realities, with a little poking and prodding, we see how up close and personal God is. Last Sunday, let me give you a quick, quick review so we can get this context for us. We started this series from the book of Haggai. Haggai is a prophet whom God spoke to to give a message to God's people. God's people were in the land of Jerusalem. They had just returned back some 66 years or so, or some, some not, not quite 66 years, but several years before And God's people had come back to the land out of exile in Babylon. And when they came back to the land, God wanted them to begin to rebuild. 
the land, in particular starting with the temple, which is the place of worship, because God wants his people worshiping him because he knows that when we're worshiping him, we're finding satisfaction in life. And God wants your joy, he wants his glory, so he wants your worship. But the problem was that his people started the project but let, let it go. They didn't keep going with it. They were discouraged. And so what they started to do instead was to begin to build their own houses. And God actually says they're, they're your paneled houses. Like you're living in some, some kind of luxury. You're, you're putting a lot of thought into the design of your place while my place lays in ruin. And God says because of that, I brought a drought on the land. And so like when you're eating, you're never satisfied. When you're drinking, you're still thirsty. When you put money in your wallet, you feel like there's a hole in there. Why? Because you're not doing my will. And so God says, in order to get things right, stop what you're doing, consider your ways, get up to the mountains, bring down some wood, and start building my house. God's people were moved in their heart. God stirred their hearts where they were cut to the heart and repented of their sin. They asked God for forgiveness, and they got building. They got to work on the 24th day of the sixth month. Now, the Jewish calendar is different than ours, so that's not June 24th. It's in October, according to the Jewish calendar. And so we come to the passage in chapter 1, and they're building the temple. And we see in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day. So they've been at the work of building for about a month. At the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And it says, speak now to Zerubbabel, that's the governor, speak now to Joshua, who's the high priest, the spiritual leader, and speak to all the people. And then he gives them a message. God brings them a message because he knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows that there is some discouragement that's beginning to settle in as they're building the temple. Now the first point of discouragement comes in the dating we find of this passage. It says we're told it's the seventh month on the 21st day. Now, we know our own holidays. If I tell you it's the 25th day of the 12th month, what is that? It's Christmas. If it's the fourth day of the seventh month, what is that? It's the 4th of July. Yeah. And so we know our calendar days. We are not familiar with the Jewish calendar. But to any Jewish person, you said it's the seventh month, the 21st day, they'll know, ah, I know what's going on. Because on the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. It is when they announce the coming of these different festival celebrations they're about to take part in. On the tenth day of the month is called the Day of Atonement. It's the day once a year where the priest goes into the tabernacle or the temple to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. It's that one time of the year where God sends the priest to slaughter an animal... And for God to declare his forgiveness over his people. See, on the Day of Atonement, it was a day of repentance. It was a day when people were reminded of their failures and their shortcomings. And then reminded of God's grace to offer them forgiveness. And here these people are in a rut in the land of Jerusalem. Because of the failures of their ancestors. And the failures of themselves. And so the day of atonement comes, and no doubt they're like, man, what a mess we're in right now. 
Our land is destroyed. Our temple is in ruin. God just rebuked us because of our sin. And what is supposed to be a day of celebration over forgiveness, no doubt it created within them some regret over their past. The other thing that takes place in the seventh month is on the 15th day to the 22nd day, it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a one-week celebration where God's people actually pitch a tent outside and live in a tent for a week. Imagine doing that in your backyard. You're like, why would they do that for? It was to remind them that when God took them out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness and they were essentially homeless. But during that time, they lived in tents. And as they lived in tents, their sandals never wore out for 40 years. They never ran out of food in a desert for 40 years. They grew as a people in a desert for 40 years. So the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is supposed to be a reminder that though they were homeless, God provided for them. That would end on the 22nd. And here we are on the 21st day of the month, the day before the Feast of Booths ends, and no doubt they're like, man, we actually are not homeless. In fact, our houses are pretty nice. We got paneled houses while God's house is in ruin. And here in the midst of this seventh month, which is supposed to be a month of celebration, no doubt they were cut to the heart because in it they realized how far they had fallen from God. They were looking in the past, and there they saw they had failed. And so God sends Haggai to bring them a message. But that's not the only thing that discourages them. You see, throughout the seventh month, they're working on the temple on and off because during these celebrations, you weren't allowed to work. So they'd work, and then they'd stop. They'd work, and then they'd stop. And here they come towards the end of this, this seventh or this, this uh, feast of booths, and they're looking at the temple they'd already started to begin to build. And one thing became very clear to every single person. And it was this. That what they were prepared to build would pale in comparison to the temple that had been destroyed. Look at the line of questioning. God speaks through Haggai in verse 3. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. Like, how many of you are old enough to remember the old temple? They had to be probably at least 70 years old, which means they would be four years old when the temple was destroyed. So it was just the elderly folk who would have been there and remembered that. And then he asks a second question. How do you see it now? How's this one looking to you? And then he asks a third question, which gets at their heart. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Basically, God's like, I know you're looking at this temple, and you see what I see. What you're about to build is nothing like the old one that Solomon had built. It's almost like God was billboarding their failures. Who is left among you? It's like their blueprints were a misprint. 
it's like they would say, I look at this house as we're starting to build it, and it is magnificently mediocre. It's nothing like the one that Solomon had built. And you ask, well, what was it like, the one that Solomon had built? Well, Solomon was the wisest man to walk this earth. And so he had the architectural skill. Solomon was a wealthy man, the wealthiest in the region. So he had the financial means. And what Solomon does is he goes to the neighboring kingdom of Tyre. He says, hey, look, I know y'all got good trees there. you've You've got cedars You've got the best supplies. I'm going to buy the best supplies from you. I'm going to hire your best artists to work with my best artists. And they're going to build God a temple unlike anything anyone's ever seen. And they have built this temple. They overlay it with gold. They have ornate designs. Their artists were working on things. And here now, they have neither the wisdom of Solomon nor the wealth of Solomon nor the skill sets of Solomon and the people because they just came out of exile. And they're supposed to build God a temple. There they are, staring down their regret, now making a comparison between what they're about to build with what had happened in the past. Family, these are the kind of things that you and I do so often in life. We look where we're at now We look back with so much regret, and we start comparing what we're doing to the things around us or the things behind us. Y'all with me on that? We start comparing what we've got, our gifts, with someone else's gifts and thinking, man, if only I had their talents, if only I had their financial possessions, if only I had their reputation, if only I had their followers, If only I had their kids. If only I had a spouse like their spouse. If I only had joy like their joy. Or if only I had the joy I used to have. If only I had the obedience I used to have. If only I have whatever I used to have, but I'm not there right now. And so comparison and regret are putting you down. And then what happens then? You look at other people and you start becoming envious of them, sometimes bitter at them and bitter at God. How many of you know that comparison is a hungry monster that will never be satisfied? It reminds you of your teenage child who eats and then 20 minutes later is looking through the cabinets. It's a monster that will never be satisfied because comparisons, the the reason we compare is because we find something of our identity and worth by comparing ourselves to someone else. And if we perceive ourselves to be better than them, then we feel good about ourselves. But here's the bottomless pit of it. There's always another person to compare yourself to. And so we spin our tires over and over Stuck in place. And as I read this prophecy, I kind of feel like, man, like, Haggai, you're kind of like, man, it stinks to be you guys. Y'all really blew it. Or reminds me of Job when his friends come to comfort him after his whole family and everything fell apart. And and Job looks at them and says, terrible comforters are you. He's like, what are you doing? Get away from me. And I wonder if they're like, man, Haggai. We went through these feasts. We went through these celebrations. You know how we're feeling. And then you're here like, hey, 
You know this temple is not like the old one, right? But here's the thing. Haggai is not coming by his own volition. What does it tell us in verse 1? How does he get there? It says that the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Because God's not only a God that meets us and rebukes us when we've strayed away, but he's also a God who comforts us in our darkest moments, who comforts us in our deepest regrets, who meets us in our dissatisfying disappointments, and he is right on time with his word through Haggai. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I do look back. I do compare. I am dissatisfied. Consider this. That God has today and today will speak through me and through his word, a word to you to teach you to trust in him. What you won't find in this passage is God saying, I told y'all. I told you this is what I was going to be. I I said it. When you turn from me, shame on you. What you're not going to find in this passage is God saying, tough luck. Or God saying, feel a little worse, then come to me. That's how we deal with people. We, we want them to feel a little worse before they feel better. And sometimes we project the way we deal with people upon God and think he'll deal with us the same way. But we know one thing about the Bible. It teaches that God is love. Not that God is loving, although he is. Not that God has loved, although he has, but that God is love because it is part of his character. Love is made visible in God. And as a God who is love, he's also a God who is merciful. Yes, he's a God who is just, but this is what God is all about. He confronts them in order to restore them, and in their restoration, they're discouraged because they're comparing. And God's like, hold up, watch me here. I'm going to restore you and strengthen you even in the midst of what you perceive to be weak. So there are three particular ways that God emboldens them in the midst of comparison. Three particular ways he'll pull you out of that rut. Three ways he will be your foundation when you're stuck in the snow of life. In verse 4, after he's exposed the fact that in their hearts they're regretting and they're comparing, verse 4, God says, yet now, he's about to make a a switch here. That's how you feel, but yet now, but now watch this, he says, be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong, people. Three times God gives them the command, not the option, but the command, like, be strong. Be strong. He's not talking about get to the gym here, family. He's saying have a strength of will, a strength of resolve, a strength of determination that's rooted in me so that you're not looking and comparing, but you're trusting me. Be strong. And then he gives them this one-word command in verse 4. He says work. Work. God's looking for a mind at work. From my Hamilton fans. God's like, you want a revelation? I've got a resolution. So listen to my declaration. What's God's declaration for them? He says, work for, why? For, what does he say? I am with you. 
He said, when you're stuck in the rut of comparing yourself, when you're stuck in the rut of looking in the past, I need you to be strong. I need you to do what I've called you to do because I am with you. I'm not holding your past over your face. I'm not bringing up your failures time and time again. I'm with you, and I've given you a purpose, so be strong, not in your own strength. Be strong in me and in my presence. Let God, here's the first thing I want you to see. Let God embolden you with the promise of his presence when you're stuck in comparison. When you look at other people in that moment say, God, you're with me. I'm not her. I'm not him. I'm not where I used to be. I'm at where I'm at right now. God, and you're with me. Grant me the strength to do what you've called me to do without looking around and seeing what others are doing. Comparing myself. You see, regretted comparison will weaken your resolve to trust God. But God's presence will embolden you. And he's telling this people here, be strong. Work, because I'm with you. He tells them another thing here. Another way to get out of this rut of comparison and regret. He says, be persevering. Look in verse 5. Let me go back to verse 4, actually. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, Joshua, the people. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst Fear not. So he tells them, be strong because I'm with you. But he's also saying, persevere, persevere because of my faithfulness. I'm with you and I'm going to stay with you. I'm not with you conditionally. I'm with you when you are my child and I promise to never leave you nor forsake you. And he says this when he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. You see, what God is drawing to their attention is this fact, that when they were in slavery in Egypt, stuck as slaves to this great taskmaster called the Egyptian Empire, and God brought them out of that slavery, God said, I'm going to bring you out into the land that I promise. And time and again, throughout the story of their exodus, their, their leaving Egypt, God tells them statements like we find in Exodus 29, 45, and 46. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. So what's the covenant, this promise that God made with his people? It is that he will be their God. I'm your God. I'm not going anywhere. I am your God. And the fact of God's Keeping his covenant promises is a reminder that our God is faithful, family. And because he's faithful, we don't have to compare. We can remember he is with us and he's going to stay with us. And that's why he tells them, my spirit remains in your midst. God the Holy Spirit is not going to leave his people. This is the same Holy Spirit that empowered Moses and the elders to instruct this is the same Holy Spirit that Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
This is the same spirit who hovered over the deep before creation. This is the same spirit who breathed life into humanity, who spoke through the prophets, who gave boldness to Joshua when entering the land, who clothed Gideon when he was afraid, who strengthened Samson in the midst of war. This is the spirit that God says will remain among his people. So let yourself, secondly, let yourself be renewed with the reminder of God's faithfulness. He keeps his promises, family. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promise to be with us, have his spirit among us. Therefore, we can, those last two words of verse 5, we can fear not. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear our past. We don't have to fear our failures. We can trust in God. What I love is, in the Bible, we find that this command to fear not, when it's uttered from God's lips, are often followed by or preceded by a reminder of his presence. Let me give you some examples here. Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. Presence. Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. Presence. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, presence. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not, for I am with you, presence. Isaiah 41, 13, it is I who says to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you, presence. Isaiah 43, 1, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine presence. See, God renews us with strength when we're reminded of his presence so we no longer have to compare ourselves to other people or look to the past. Comparison causes us to forget God's presence and his promises. And so, family, you need a foundation and be founded on the fact that God is with you and he will never leave you when you put your faith in Jesus. But there's a third thing that God does here to remind them of his presence and to get them out of this funk of comparison. He tells them to also to be attentive. You see, God inspires his people with the assurance that he's got a plan and so that's what he wants you to do, to be assured knowing that God has a plan for your life no matter how mediocre it might appear to you. How do we know this? Well, here they are building a temple that they know from the very start will not be as nice as the one they're trying to replace. Doesn't it feel like life is sometimes like that? Like, I'm already starting a losing battle. I'm putting in a lot of work, and I know it's already not going to pan out the way I want it to pan out. If only this would be different. If only that would have changed. But that's not what's happened. And that's not the situation they're in. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. They don't have the wisdom of Solomon. They haven't got his wealth, and they don't have the skilled artistry. They've got what they've got. And God says, give me that. Give me what you've got and watch me do things with it that you can't even dream of. Because what God wants is our faithfulness. 
He doesn't want us wondering what if. He wants our faithfulness in the now. I love what he does here. Look at, look at verse 5. He says, according to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And then verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What God is telling them is build this house. And though it seems little in your eyes, I'm going to bring treasure here. And I'm going to make the glory of this house even greater than Solomon's. Yo, how are you going to do that, God? Are they going to install like digital thermostats? Solar panel roofs? Heated floors? Like, how are you going to make this house nicer than Solomon's with his wisdom, wealth, and artistry? Well, this is what God wants them to know. Is that what appears mediocre to them, God can use to do great things through it. God says he's going to shake the heavens in verse 6 and shake the earth and the sea and the dry land. God's going to do some shaking, family. And when he shakes, wealth will come into this place, he says. You see, in chapter 1, God was stirring the hearts of his people, but now he needs to shake the earth a little bit. So even before James Bond, God preferred shake and not stirred. And he's going to shake the earth in such a way that brings wealth. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, several hundred years later, Herod would come and would see this temple and begin to add to it and make it much more beautiful than it was when Zerubbabel and the people built it. And the nations, this pagan ruler, is actually going to dress up this temple and make it quite nice. God's going to do some shaking to bring some wealth in. But that's still not, I don't think, the main thing. Because it says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And I think of the temple in Solomon's day. As beautiful as it was and Solomon finished building it, it says that at the time of the dedication, the glory of God entered the house. And so when Haggai's like, the latter glory will be greater than the former. You're like, how will this place top that? It's a wild thought. Before I answer that question, I want you to think what that message meant to the people filled with regret and comparison and discouraged. God just told them that although they feel like they've got nothing to offer him, he says, just give me what you've got. And I'll do glorious things with it. I want you all to hear that. You may look at other people and be like, man, I haven't got the life they've got. And they may just be honoring God. Things may be great, but that, they're not you. Your story is not their story. Your gifts are not their gifts. Your past is not their past. And your future is not necessarily their future either. But God says, give me your obedience. Give me your worship. 
And watch what I'll do with it. This message comes loud and clear. And what is it about this house in the future that would make it more glorious than the house of the past? Well, some 530 years after the time of this moment, a young girl with her young baby and her new husband would enter into this temple. And this little child they had just named Jesus would be brought into this temple. This Jesus, God with us, God in human flesh, would come into this mediocre space. And Simeon would see that young couple and that baby. And he says, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. And when he was 12 years old, he would enter that temple again, stepping foot in the temple that Zerubbabel made. God would step foot into this temple that they thought was little in comparison to Solomon. God himself would be there physically. And at 12 years old, he'd learn. And as an adult, he'd be grieved by what happened at that temple. But God in human flesh would come there and we would live a life that they couldn't live to save people from the sins that Zerubbabel and others had done. And he went to a cross, died on our behalf, rose from the dead, and is victorious. This God in human flesh was in Zerubbabel's temple. So indeed, the latter glory of this house is far greater than the former. And that's why it can be said in the end of verse 9, And in this place I will give shalom. The prince of peace walked that place. Family, so often we start determining our future by how things are looking now. And we find ourselves comparing, regretting, and we fail to recognize that God doesn't want you to be someone else. He wants you to be faithful to him. He wants you to remember that he is with you. Presence. He wants you to remember that he's staying with you. Promise. And he wants you to remember that he could do far more with the scraps that you feel you have to offer than you could ever dream of. So how do you move past your past? Will you get your traction in the presence and promise and plans of God? Because when God puts a calling on your life, and he does that the moment you put your faith in Jesus and turn from your sins, he makes you a new creation. He adopts you in this family, and he gives you a purpose. Walk in that, family. Walk in that. And when you fail, you be quick to repent like they were. And you keep going back to God time and time again because he won't let you down. And I know that God can and will do mighty things through your obedience because he cares about his glory. Praise God for our Savior Jesus, who not only brings this prophecy to truth, but teaches us an important lesson at the same time. And I still yet believe that one day God will yet again rebuild a temple in glory. And then we will be with him, and there will be nothing like it. And there we will be with our Lord forever and ever. Walk with that hope, fam.
Don't look back. Look ahead and watch what God will do for you. Father in heaven, thank you for stirring and thank you for shaping, God. Thank you for moving, oh Lord. God, I pray that you would rise up faith today, God. God, it's my prayer that there might be someone today watching here in person, online, who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to earth to live and die for them and raise from the dead, that they would see your purpose, they would know that you love them, that you will use them, that no matter what has happened, that you've got plans for them. God, for that child of yours here today who has let their regret they look back, they're so discouraged because of choices they've made or things that's happened to them. And Lord, I pray you would free them from that bondage of backward looking and staying there. God, would you, would you deliver them, God, for the one who just, just compares and hates that they do it. I pray they would see how beautiful they are, how gifted they are, how loved they are how you are in control. Oh, Lord, keep us close, we pray. Keep us on a short leash, we pray. Thank you for loving us like you do, God. We come to you, Lord, and ask that you continue to move in us and establish these truths deep within our souls. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Let's rise to our feet, family. Prayer team, we will invite you forward. Come to the right and left of the stage. And family, if you come with a prayer burden, God is stirring in your heart, or maybe he's shaking you. Will you let someone pray with you, pray for you? Let's sing together as a response to what God is doing. What an invitation God gives us. Just come, he says. Just come. Come to me. Man, what a merciful God we serve. In a moment, I'm going to dismiss you all. Just a quick reminder that our real community gathering start back up this Thursday, 6.30 p.m. Our brother Kerry Weiss will be at the connections table. Uh, talk with him about getting connected with the real community. Maybe you are connected. Maybe it's been a minute since you've been a part of one. It's time for a fresh start. God is calling you. This will be a great opportunity to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters, to be moved in your faith. Maybe you're exploring the faith. We want you to know that's a safe place for you to do that. You might come and say, hey, I'm not a Christian yet. Like, that's all good. Come, man. We want to hear your story. We want you to just to share with where you're at. We, we invite you to be part of that. That's our desire. And again, Brooke Youth will see you this Friday coming up. We're looking forward to that as well. God's word tells us in Isaiah 41.10, do not fear. Why? For I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the promise of the living God who stays the same and he is unchanging. And he is that for you. God bless you, Brooke family. You are dismissed. Go get your kids downstairs if you got them down there. We'll see you out.